Welcome to the Treach Podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson, and today I'm talking to the husband and wife duo, Dr. Hannah Musa and Dr. Vic Vines. Hannah is a veteran who served as the sole psychiatrist for the western half of Afghanistan on deployment, and Vic is a board-certified addictionologist and fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. In both their lines of work and personal lives, they have experienced deep isolation and loneliness, but they believe this can be overcome with vulnerability. They joined Reverend Doug Meyer on a virtual roundtable about this topic that you can watch at tmumc.org wellness. One of the things that has been so, um, I don't know, illuminating for me watching y'all's roundtable, getting to be a part of it is just how open and vulnerable y'all are with each other and talking about uh, specifically isolation and loneliness, which is what we were covering, but also, man, there is a full gamut of emotions that come with that feeling of isolation and loneliness. And so I'd like to know what was a time in each of your lives that you felt the most isolated and alone and some of the feelings that came with that? Because it seems that this is one of the things that has a lot of layers to it. One of the times where I felt most isolated was during um, my tour in Afghanistan in 2011. My little ones were super little. They're not so little anymore, but they were two and six and eight. And they, you know, as any mom, a stay-at-home mom or working mom, your little ones are... at that age, your life revolves around them. So going from having three little beings around you, needing you, wanting you all the time to being in Afghanistan with a lot more beings who need you, but in a different way. Um, And my role as a psychiatrist there, you know, was one of emotional support and exploration for those individuals who were also away from their family. So not only was I isolated, but all of the patients I was treating we're also dealing with isolation and sadness. And I would say for me, one of the biggest feelings was um, emptiness. I had a set purpose and goal. And I think that's one of the beauties of deployment is the job you have is so detrimental and it is so powerful and purposeful. That can really help you overcome all of the negative feelings and uncomfortable feelings that come about by being so isolated. So how I overcame that empty, lonely feeling was by definitely throwing myself into my job, which worked in that environment. That's not going to work in every environment, but for me, that worked well. Um, I also developed a really strict routine of when I got up, um, what I did, the, the down to the time I brushed my teeth. Um, I went to uh, eat at the same times every day. I worked out regularly. Um, I attempted to develop relationships with the people that were working um, in the mental health tent with me. And um, we played um, games at night and we had a puzzle going 24-7 that we were constantly working on. So those are some of the ways that I overcame some of that sadness and loneliness. 
Well, and one of the things that you mentioned in the roundtable is caregiver fatigue and how sometimes when you're so busy caring for other people, you forget to check in with yourself and see how you're doing. And what was that like when you are treating people who are experiencing the same issues with feeling isolation, loneliness, separated from their family, and you're here on the other side, I don't know how the room was set up, but you're on the other side of the couch, <laughs> and you're experiencing the same things, but trying to guide them through that. How did you handle that? Well, I think recognizing that we're all human and that if I am, for me, it's about um, some boundary setting. If these people are coming to me needing help, that probably means I need help. And though I can't come to myself for that help, um, you know, there are some other people around me that at least are willing to listen. And in the at the end of the day, the biggest part of what I do for people as a psychiatrist is hear them. I bear witness to their stories and their lives. And if I can find somebody, even if it's in a new environment, um, that there's some cues that they send off that say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trustworthy um, and I can begin to explore that, that give that gave me an opportunity to uh, really have somebody to talk to. So there were um, occupational therapists that I worked with and they um, there was one in particular that um, I was able to, you know, just debrief at night, even if it was just for 10 or 15 minutes to just say, this was a hard day. This case was really hard. This person was really struggling. I wasn't sure if I made any difference today. Just having that space with someone and trying as hard as I could, I couldn't do it every day, but trying as hard as I could to be intentional about it when I, when I did have the headspace to do it uh, was really powerful. And Vic, what was that moment for you when you were like, man, I am feeling completely disconnected and isolated from the rest of the world uh, and the feelings that came with that for you? Yeah, <clears throat> that was, uh, Hannah and I were talking about this <clears throat> last night and it was, I can tell you, I mean, down almost to the day. Uh, and that would have been in August of 2009. And, you know, we'd mentioned earlier that I was in addiction treatment uh, during 2009, and and I had been in treatment and had returned home. Uh, I had a really significant relapse and was back in treatment again. <clears throat> and with that second episode back in treatment, I was in the process of beginning to lose everything <clears throat> that had been um, that had been a part of my life. That was a a time of aloneness and sadness and grief uh, like I had never known before. And in comparison, I, I had previously, my, uh, my first wife and I had a, a daughter who died when she was five days old. And I, I had experienced the grief of, of losing uh, a child. But this grief was, was so wrapped up in aloneness and distance from all that I counted for, counted on, and leaned into to help me know who I was. And part of what that was all about, that loneliness, was that I did not have a relationship with myself enough at that time to know that I was going to be okay, even if I lost other significant relationships. And it was it was profoundly 
unsettling. The way I dealt with that and the way I moved through that was in finally coming to the understanding that my loneliness had been self-imposed from my unwillingness to be open and be transparent with other people about who I really was, fearing that if they knew who I was that that they wouldn't have anything to do with me. They wouldn't want to they wouldn't want to see me. They wouldn't want to be around me. And you know the initial consequences of my addiction actually bore that out. But what I learned was it wasn't the the humanity behind me that that caused me to have have behaviors that were so broken it was the unwillingness to own those and unwillingness to share those with other people and ask for help and that's where the aloneness and the isolation comes from and so you know as we're talking right now about the whole past year of of loneliness and isolation due to covid and and separation from all that is has been part of our our daily routine that's really just a metaphor for the aloneness and um and isolation that many of us have experienced all of our lives because we were not willing to be known we were not willing to be transparent we weren't willing to be vulnerable and the way i moved through that loneliness was i began to develop healthy open transparent relationships where I would lead with the uh, with the line of you know the thing I don't want you to know about me, but but I really need to say out loud is, and you know I think that was, and in terms of my relationship with Hannah, that was one of the very early uh, ways that we related with each other, or that I related with her was, you know there's something about me that that I wish wasn't true, but but it is true, and I just I you know I just need to say it, and that kind of of connection allowed me to build new friendships and new healthy relationships. It also allowed me to go back and make amends into the in the relationships where it was appropriate uh, for me to do so. Um, and then a part of being healthy was understanding that the a lot of the separateness from other people, uh, from other institutions, from other organizations, uh, was a natural expected consequence of of what my addictions had looked like, and and that making a living amends and learning to just say I I am in relationship with a with a higher power who loves and cares for me, and and I just need to show up and be honest and be transparent about who I am, and that was that was the way that um, that I found my way through those uh through those feelings of aloneness separation and isolation and i i think that's probably the thing that i i have carried the most is is when over this past year we've had physical distance uh hannah and and the kids have been here in north texas and most of the time i'm up in minnesota the thing that allows us to uh, to stay connected over that long distance in in periods of aloneness has been uh, to be open and be transparent and and be uh, be clear about what's going on uh, with us and and with uh, with those around us and and be okay with that. Well, and that was you you hit on it a little bit, but that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. Is for the two of you, how did your paths cross, and what does that vulnerability work look like in your marriage? Because I think a lot of people might be listening to this and and thinking, man, I wish I could have these types of conversations with my significant other. What would you tell them of, of what it takes to be in that vulnerability work together? 
I would say it's not um, easy work. And from my, I have, I was married before um, and my three children are from my first marriage and I didn't have experience or training in being vulnerable and transparent. I could walk into a room and with a patient and had, I knew the right answers. <laughs> I knew what to say. I knew what it looked like in them, but I, and I expected and they expected from me some vulnerability and transparency, but much more on their part, right? You walk in, you tell your psychiatrist things, you tell your therapist things, they don't generally tell you things. So um, I was good at telling or teaching people how to do it, but I had not done it well. And so moving into um, working at Sante Center for Healing, which is was my first job out of the military, um, my first um, civilian job out of the military as a psychiatrist there. Um, Vic was working as an addiction medicine physician. And, you know, that was the first experience I had of people being really open and honest. I, it, it's, it's a joke between us because there was a, my initial like physician's lunch meeting. Vic was there. We had another physician who worked with us and myself, and we just are at Subway down the street getting the sandwich and all of the sudden they start talking about their addiction and they're talking about their relationships like some really deep and you know emotional things and i'm a stranger they don't know me i've just met them and i get in my car and i call one of my girlfriends and i'm like i just had the strangest experience ever. Um, but I think that was kind of like, do y'all remember that I'm still sitting here? Are you sure right. you want to say all these things? Yes. <laughs> like, how are you saying that out loud in front of a stranger? Like, I don't even know if I'd say that to my friends. How are you doing that? And how is that helpful? Um, and well, so, you, I <laughs> you know, and in that moment, here's the thing that, that what, what he and I did not take into account he and I were were used to uh, being in 12-step meetings where you you would have people around that maybe you had never seen before and that 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 honesty and transparency is is and vulnerability is a part of what allows that kind of of meeting to be healing and and helpful and you know Hannah just didn't know that she had signed up for a 12-step meeting I oh, did. You know, I had, you know, I did my, um, my required two 12 step meetings when I was in medical school to go and observe the addicts, right? That's, that was like my experience with it. And so, uh, and you know, those were my first days there at Sante. And the more I watched and learned from the people that were around me, the more I realized that, um, that openness, that transparency, that vulnerability was powerful and it was something that I wanted. And so I, um, I, I, you know, I definitely working there began a transformation in me seeing individuals, not only patients, but staff growing and, and working and learning. And, um, you know, I, I just said, that's something that I want. I had not had that in my um, family of origin much. Um, my, my father had 
uh, or has is is a um, has alcohol use disorder, and he's been sober for several years now. But my whole childhood and growing up, that was something that I dealt with, and I, you know, we didn't have the opportunities to go to Al-Anon, and he wasn't going to AA, and there weren't things like that in my life, and so I was really thankful, and that really set the stage for the relationship that um, Vic and I have now to be able to do that with each other. Mm. Well, and the work to be vulnerable with somebody, yes, it, it, I look at the two of you and I see y'all interact with each other and I'm like, oh man, this is great. Like this is something all of us should be doing, but we can't forget that this is painful work. And so what I want to ask is through your journey to vulnerability and finally opening up to other people with who you are, what are some of the things you've lost doing that? But also on the flip side, what have you gained? Well, the things that we, you know, initially it doesn't seem that there would be anything to lose by being vulnerable when you've experienced vulnerability and, and your life is so much better. And, um, and that's where she and I are, but we, we did have to go back and say, what is it that, that we, that we lose or that we set aside? Um, and some of the things we lose are negatives. I, I, I'll just tell you that, that in a place of not being vulnerable and a place of, of having, uh, being image managed where we're, we're wanting to look a certain way and that being the way we think people expect us to be, we have a sense of control over other people's images of us. And one of the things that we lose in our vulnerability is we lose the, the false idea that we can control what other people think or believe about us. That is a, and that's a significant plus. Uh, we, we relinquish that, that false idea. One of the things that we also experience in being vulnerable, though, is that we, we put ourselves at the risk of being hurt. And most of us, as a matter of developing our, um, our ways of thinking and believing, uh, we have this idea that if we make ourselves vulnerable and exposed to hurt, that we will be hurt, we'll be wounded, and, and that, you know, emotionally, that, that could be a mortal wound. And the thing that we gain by being vulnerable is that we, we realize that in our transparency and in our vulnerability, when we don't do it in a manipulative way, when we are transparent and vulnerable, we gain a depth of relationships and we, we learn to trust not only the person that we're with, but we begin to learn to trust our own intuition. And I think that's one of the things that, uh, that we gain that is so significant is a, a validation of who we are, what we think, what we believe. And when we can can trust ourselves, it, it puts us in, a, in such a better place to, to relate with others. For sure, there are going to be people who, when we are vulnerable and when we uh, put our, uh, our, the reality of who we are out on the table, 
that's going to be so uncomfortable for some people because they're not prepared for that level of vulnerability uh, in us, and they're certainly not prepared to have that level of vulnerability for themselves. Yeah, it can almost be threatening of you're opening up and, and being your true self, and now is that expected of me? Like, I don't know you. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and that's that's what Hannah's experience was of that first lunch at Subway, I think, was, <laughs> was holy cow you know i can't i can't imagine this level of vulnerability because i uh, hearing it from someone else because i'm sure not prepared to go there myself right. and um you know that was something that uh that going back to our relationship with doug that doug and i struggled with in august that year that i told you i was so lonely was was when doug came into my life in a way that uh, we had been we had been friends and and connected for for a couple of decades at that point but uh it 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 took on a deeper meaning and doug had to wrestle with his own issue of of i'm not i'm not sure i'm ready to be that vulnerable and then what grew out of that the same with hannah and you know that's that's a uh that was a pretty special uh way of of developing a relationship one of the things that i lost in being vulnerable was this idea that I had to be something or some or, or appear a certain way to be loved and be cared for. Um, Hannah and I had our in our relationship we we knew each other and worked together for uh, for a year before we really uh, began to develop a, a relationship and then and then we continued growing that relationship for another year and and it was it was wonderful to go into a caring loving uh, and an engaged relationship where all of the things that I had previously wanted to to have uh, hidden and kept away were out on the table and were known, and that that allows a depth of relationship that uh, whether it's in a romantic uh, partner relationship or whether it's in a working relationship, uh, it was a uh, it was wonderful to find out that being transparent from the outset meant that all kinds of wonderful things could grow. Well, and I think, you know, um, coming off of, of that, we, we want to believe, I, or at least I wanted to believe that I could be loved more if you knew only the good parts of me. If you didn't know all the bad parts, you had to love me better or more or want me more um, if you didn't know the bad. But what I didn't know until I was able as a consequence of being around other people who were demonstrating vulnerability to me was that you actually don't ever have the opportunity to be loved fully when you are hiding part of yourself from someone and that vulnerability and transparency allows for you to be loved like you could never be loved i mean it's just that's a powerful thing for someone to love to know all the bad stuff about you and still love you um know all the things that you think are are secrets and and and, and flaws that need to be hidden away but to be accepted and loved not in spite of those but because of those that's pretty amazing well and and all this talk about uh image management and how we fall into that hannah it makes me think of something that you said uh, that you called imposter syndrome, which leads to so much disconnection and isolation and loneliness and just feeling like uh, whatever group I'm a part of, I don't belong here. Like, I'm not like these people. I can't uh, fit in. I'm not enough. You know, all of that. 
um, I feel like they're connected in some way, this image management and this idea of imposter syndrome. Um, how do you see that playing out today? Well, you know, I, I believe that it's in everybody's life. There's some aspect of ourselves that doesn't feel like what we're supposed to be or our best self. Um, that played out the most for me um, when I was in medical school. And, you know, I can think back to those days and think back, I didn't deserve to be in medical school. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't rich enough. I didn't have the right house. What is it? How could I be a doctor? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like all of those things, which kept me separate from everybody. Um, again, if they, if they, if I was vulnerable and they knew about me, they wouldn't let me be here. They, they would, you know, take my ticket and make me leave. Um, and as I've become, as I've grown and matured and, and, um, you know, learned in relationships that vulnerability is powerful, I definitely do that better. Uh, however, there are still, you know, every day I have to fight against this idea that perfection or perfectness is what I'm striving for. That's part of who I am. And it's a challenge for me. Like my house needs to look perfect and my kids need to behave perfect and they need to go to the perfect schools and they need to do the perfect things. And I need to have the perfect friends and the perfect car and the like that's all still inside of me. I am always challenging those statements in my head and I am better about it. It doesn't take me as long. It's not as uncomfortable when I can say my backyard doesn't look as beautiful as my best friend's backyard and that's okay. Like I am not less up, that's less than I've, I've not, it's not because I don't work hard enough. It's not because of this thing or that thing or all the things I make up in my head as to why it is that way. When I can just say, I have some, I am amazing and my family's amazing and we are exactly where we are and we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be um, doing. I have a better day, uh, but it's a constant struggle for me. And that perfectionism, that idea, that American ideal dream of the 2.5 kids and the beautiful house and the cars and like that coming from a place of poverty, that was the goal. And the problem becomes when you get there, what next? Like I have a great job and I have a great house and I have great kids and I, but like, is that it? Am I done? <laughs> and so coming to an awareness that that wasn't the goal in the first place. Like I have to re-maneuver through that on a regular basis. And Vic is really helpful at, at, at getting me there on days when it's a little bit more of a struggle. Well, and I imagine a lot of people who are listening to this right now have heard what you described of this imposter syndrome of if they find out these things about me, they won't want me here anymore. Man, there's no way people haven't felt that way in the church. And it's it's so hard to hear because I, I love the church so much. And uh, obviously I work for the church. Like I want the church to be a place where people feel loved and accepted exactly for who they are and not for what they've accomplished or where they've made mistakes or, or whatever it is. But I think that so many people feel that way when they walk into the church building of, I have to present myself a certain way. If I don't, they won't want me here. And man, to feel isolated and lonely and disconnected in that way in a church building, 
I'm, Vic, do you have any uh, reaction to that? Absolutely. So, uh, having grown up in the in the United Methodist Church, um, actually, I'm old enough that I was a member of the church for ten years when it was just the Methodist Church, and then became the United Methodist Church in '68. But um, that's that was a feeling I remember hearing, and uh, or words that I heard that were supportive that we are we are all loved as we are, and. Um, and I used to be able to hear those and and see that those could apply to other people, but for me, uh, I had this idea, and it was the in it is it is an arrogance beyond belief that I had the idea that my badness and my brokenness was so bad that I could not be forgiven for that. I mean, I was I was that special that my badness was just beyond forgiveness. And therefore I kept it to myself and didn't share it with anyone as though keeping it to myself would, would make it not true. And the thing that I, uh, that I realized was that the imposter syndrome was not only that I, I was feared that I would be shunned if, if people really knew me, uh, what I feared most was that if I let those ideas about myself go and, ad- and adopt something different, a, a different set of beliefs about myself, a different knowledge of myself, a different understanding of myself, that I would, I would essentially die. And I think, you know, when, when Paul talks about, uh, about dying to self, uh, that's exactly what the church was was all about was letting ego go turning loose of this idea of who we are and embracing who we really are the ideas that we have about ourselves the ideas that we have and project to others about our place in the, in in the community whether it's a church or a neighborhood or or work or family dynamic these ideas about who we are are what is ultimately destructive when we can be honest about who we really are and embrace what we really are and not try to pro- project an image that is ultimately one of our own construction and not one that comes from God, um, that's both terrifying because it's change away from what we have been doing and how we've managed our whole life, but it's, it's also so relieving because then we realize that we don't have to try to worry about and remember who we represented ourselves to be in each of our different settings, each of our different uh, relationships. You know, the perpetuating the lie of who we are and who we're not goes away, and we get to be we get to be real, and and we don't have to um, <clears throat> we don't have to worry that we're going to forget who we are. And that's that's probably one of the one of the most healing. Um, healing the experiences that I had. And I I also think that one of the difficult things and in in the church as well, we're in, in our culture, we are taught to believe that we are ultimately striving to get to a place of constant joy and without pain. And if we're doing everything right, then we won't experience that pain. Like we'll be happy all the time and nothing bad will go wrong. I mean, nothing will go wrong and um, we won't have any hard 
you know, difficult emotions. Yeah, if I'm if I'm connected to God, I'll never feel lonely because I'm right. never alone. Exactly. I'm never alone. I'm never sad. All the stuff happens right. And if I'm feeling pain and if something is uncomfortable and if if something seems to be going wrong, I must be failing somehow. I'm not a good enough Christian or I'm not a good enough mom. My kid is using drugs. Oh my gosh. Like I, it, I'm bad somehow. And I think that's a very culturally specific idea here that we have in the United States, this idea of let's move forward, let's get a lot of things, let's make a lot of money, let's have all the stuff, and then we'll be happy and nothing bad will happen. Um, or our perce perception of what a bad thing is. I think an, an important shift, it's a small shift, but it's so empowering, is to recognize that our lives are supposed to be filled with hard and painful things and that they're not going to stop. We're not going to get to a point where we've learned enough or um, been challenged enough or any of the stuff enough. It's going to continue to be painful. Um, and the goal is not to get to a painless place, but the goal is to learn as we go along through those challenging experiences that we have. And when we have people around us that can lift us up when we need to be lifted up in that challenge or that we can help lift up when they're in challenge, um, that is how those joyful moments become so much more joyful. And those painful moments, we can come to a place of recognizing our gifts that otherwise we would not have learned that valuable lesson that we learned. And so if we're comparing ourselves to on the joyometer, do we have enough joy? And if we don't, then somehow we've done something wrong. I think shifting to, you know, what was Christ's example? I, I can often turn to that and say, Christ's life was not painless, joyful life. He experienced significant amount of pain um, and loss and, uh, and, and ultimately the loss of life. And, and out of that became an amazing faith um, that we all get to partake in. And so when I got, when I get to a point of thinking, why am I not happy? Or why is this bad thing happening? Or why is this thing hard? I can step back and say, I'm, I'm about to learn something profound. I can't in this moment know what it is. And I don't even need to search for the profound meaning in this. But someday, I know I'm going to look back and say, this, that, that, was, that was an amazing gift I got out of that. And I think that's one of the big reasons why we hide who we are or the challenges that we have for this fear that we're doing something wrong when in reality we're not. So... I want to shift for a second, and, and this conversation is so great, and I know that y'all are also guiding your kids to become uh, vulnerable, to be open, and so I, I want to know, what kind of conversations do you have with your kids about this, about your experiences, because a lot of parents are looking to be vulnerable with their kids and establish that connection with them but they don't know how. I'm guessing it's not the subway conversation, is not where you go with your children, but, but I don't know. How, how do you have those conversations with your kids? Well, that's, that's a really, uh, that's a great question, and, the, and 
so the discussion that Hannah and I had last night was, okay, well, well which kids and at what age? Um, my biological daughters are, are in their uh, mid to late 30s now, and I've got grandkids that are in elementary, elementary age, and then Hannah's kids are from junior high to high school, uh, almost into college now. And so the, the content of what we will share with each of them is, is vastly different. Um, my daughters were in their uh, early to mid twenties when I went into uh, into addiction treatment, and all of the consequences and the fallout from from my my life to that point, uh, they they knew a lot of details. Not not all of them, but they knew a lot about it. Um, and it's it's probably not uh, not a, a appropriate to uh, to have those kinds of conversations. Uh, with younger kids. But the thing that we can do with our children is model for them what it looks like to be vulnerable and to be transparent. We don't, we, we have to use some selective uh, thought and, and planning about what, what it is that we're going to share, but we can demonstrate and model for them the value of, of saying, you know, the thing that's hard for me to say right now, but I, I need to say is, the thing that is true that's that you know is um, uh, it it might cause some pain to to hear this is and and model model that and I th- I think that in uh, kids seeing and observing parents doing the thing that is is hardest to do and that's to be known and be transparent if we can practice on that with the little things. Uh, it becomes a skill. It becomes a, a muscle that we develop. That as as we grow and get older, we we apply it to more and more weighty, more and more meaty, uh, more and more consequential things. And for littler kids, it might even be something like, um, you know, I. So my youngest is twelve. He's in the sixth grade, and he. Um, he and I are similar in that we can be emotional quickly. (laughs) We can get heightened emotions quickly. And, um, you know, recognizing that those heightened emotions have some meaning behind them. We've been triggered by something. And to be able to take a step back and say, I'm, I know that I just yelled at you because I, you didn't unload the dishwasher, but I, I know that that yelling wasn't about the dishwasher. I'm feeling really over, I'm sorry. I am feeling really overwhelmed about these four other things that are happening. And I, that's not your, it's not because of you, but I did project my stuff onto you and I'm sorry. I do want you to unload the dishwasher. Um, but I also recognize that the way I got upset right now was not about that. Um, allows him then to come back to me later, which he has done. And it feels so beautiful when they can come back and say, mom, I yelled at you the other day, or this thing just happened, or I'm sorry, can I, can I just give you a hug? I'm really sorry. I, you know, my best friend didn't call me or my, you know, I was supposed to get online and game with this kid and he didn't show up, or I'm feeling sad or attacked or uncomfortable or overwhelmed for some reason. And I, that happened, that interaction, that negative interaction I had with you was, was because of that. And, and Hannah is not just making up things. These, these are things that have actually happened. I've seen I know them that dishwasher story sounded very specific. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, was, this has happened. It, this has it, happened. 
<laughs> it is very specific. It it has happened, and what's amazing is to watch the the heightened emotion and see how that de-escalates uh, the the situation. And it requires uh, it requires honesty and presence and vulnerability to herself to be able to see that that's what's going on in real time, and being able to uh, to model that. And I think that's that's the thing that is being modeled is saying I am really I am acting really upset in my my behaviors and to be able to say is this really is it the dishwasher that is causing me to feel such intense emotions or is it something else and in real time being able to say oh it can't just be the dishwasher this has to be something else and model that for the kids and then see see their response it's such a it's it is an amazing thing and and something that that I wish I'd had those skills when I was raising my own kids no this self-awareness that y'all have gotten to at this point obviously has taken a lifetime to build and I'm so happy that you're starting this work with your kids early so that they're already starting to build that self-awareness for themselves so that they can react uh, the way that you're reacting and maybe they can start doing this in their 20s and 30s as opposed to later in life. Um, if you could go back in time and give your 25-year-old self advice on how to be more vulnerable what would you say you know you're you're that that makes an assumption that the 25 year old would have listened and and i'm pretty sure that my 25 year old self would not have listened but just on the possibility that that at 25 i might have listened um what i would i would tell my 25 or 30 year old self is, hey, the things that you've been doing, the life that you've been living, the consequences of the, of the things that you've been doing up to this point that you're wanting to keep hidden, that you're wanting to not be known, those are, um, those are you trying to project a false image and, and trying to do everything you can to be loved and cared for and not rejected. And the thing that, that is really true is that, that that connection that you're looking for is going to come from being honest and being transparent and being being open to other people rather than hiding from other people. And um, I don't know that, that at 25 I could have or would have been willing to uh, to listen to that. I certainly didn't hear that, or I don't, I don't think I heard that. Um, and, you know, even even having opportunities to do some counseling uh, when I was when I was uh, at that age, I wasn't I wasn't listening. But maybe maybe put in different words, I might have listened. But I, I think that this idea that uh, that we're supposed to be a certain thing, a certain way, uh, present ourselves, you know, our, our image is supposed to be a certain thing, I think is uh, I, th I think is a, is a mistake, and I think that it's false, and that's the that's the message that I would I would tell my twenty five year old self. And I think for me, coming out of um, a family where one of my parents struggled with addiction, and always looking from the inside out, thinking that everyone else's family was better or perfect, or they knew how to do it, and getting the message and um, owning the message that if you're good enough or perfect enough, things will be okay. 
Um, I think I would reach back to my 25 year old self and say, it's okay to not be perfect. And in fact, things will never be perfect. And all of the people around you that you see that you believe are perfect aren't. Um, and everybody's hiding all of their imperfections from each other. And um, I think that I, I don't know that I would have been able to hear that message either at 25, but if I had had somebody to say, it's okay, um, perfect isn't the goal, perfect isn't the answer, that um, would have made my life a lot easier, um, having to discover that um, later on and then trying to reprogram and rewire my brain to, to move away from that. Well, thank y'all so much for recording this episode with me. I think that your stories are going to bring a lot of help to a lot of people. And maybe there's a 25-year-old listening right now. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe I'll take that advice. <laughs> maybe so. I hope so. Thank you so much for your openness and vulnerability and setting a great example for all of us of how to live more honestly. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here and being a part of this process. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe there are some 25 to 30-year-olds out there who are looking for this very message. I hope so. Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. Please remember that for even more resources on mental health, you can visit tmumc.org wellness.